Hello, I'm Nadia Singh, and welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series that aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by talking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be speaking to ID physicians who were infected with COVID-19, recovered, and are now sharing their stories in an effort to educate others. Here with me are IDSA members Dr. Buddy Creech with Vanderbilt University, Dr. Anna Person also with Vanderbilt, and Dr. Michael Sag with the University of Alabama. Thank you all so much for being here. First, let me say how happy we are to know that all of you are fully recovered and healthy. As a physician, contracting COVID-19 must have brought with it mixed emotions. As a scientist, it's a challenge that you want to explore, but as a person, it's scary and worrisome. Dr. Person, please tell us about your experience. I think that I had a, a fairly different experience from, from Buddy and Mike, knowing a little bit about what, what they went through. But I was uh, with my, my family. We, my husband, who is also a physician, and I, we have five children. And we were at my parents' house. And this was about six weeks ago. And all of a sudden, I was sitting there and felt a wave of sort of chills and fevers and muscle aches. And I thought, oh no, I hope this isn't what I think it is. And we quickly packed up and went home and I was trying to think about logistically how I could distance myself from my five children and two, two small kids. Um, turns out that's pretty hard to do. Uh, and the next day I went in to get tested and unfortunately came back positive. Um, I think that the, thing that hit us next was really just the logistics of how, you know, a two physician family with a, with kids is going to manage something like this. And uh, my husband and I tried to work out who was going to provide that childcare, which ended up being him. And I locked myself in the bedroom for the next seven days. I was lucky and I remain lucky in that my illness was overall mild and I didn't require hospitalization. But for me, the predominant symptom was actually a lot of delirium uh, and confusion. And even now, six weeks later, I still find myself um, struggling sometimes with some word finding difficulties and some memory stuff. So I almost felt like I had a more neurologic illness um, than I think perhaps Buddy and, and Mike might describe. But overall, I'm very thankful that my illness was uh, on the whole mild. I did end up missing almost a month of work um, because I had persistently positive uh, nasopharyngeal swabs. And of course, that was hard, worrying about my patients and worrying about my family and, and just being out of the loop for quite a while. Anna, this is Mike. Did you lose your sense of smell? You know, I actually did. Um, my taste changed, of course, and my sense of smell was was altered as well. Um, that wasn't the first symptom, but it happened pretty early on. I think that's becoming associated with some of the neurologic signs. Yeah, I mean, to me, it seemed to be very much a neurotropic sort of illness. I even called Buddy a few weeks ago and said, "Buddy, help! You know, I can't, I can't remember things like I used to." And reviewing manuscripts or doing doing tasks related to work became harder and harder. And he was yeah, I remember that, and it was a it was a great conversation because it made me feel like what I had experienced wasn't completely crazy, right? Um, yeah. Having a little bit of, of shared experience there was good. Yeah, I, I, to, to that point, I think my illness was a bit more um, traditional in the sense mm -hmm. that I had a flu-like illness that was associated with fever to 104 and change, chills, myalgia, 
and early cough. Um, it, it came on somewhat suddenly. Uh, I felt strange upon waking one morning and my wife felt the same. We said, surely not. Um, later that day, my wife developed some fever and went home from her job. And uh, I may or may not have lied and, and told the walk-in clinic that I had fever so that I could be tested. And, and I was positive. And this was actually in early March. Um, so flu-like illness for about five days. My wife and I both had it. Um, and then at about day six, day seven, I remember talking to a colleague and I said, I think I'm out of the woods. I'm feeling better. My fever's down. And he said, well, just, just wait. You may not be out of the woods yet. And sure enough, uh, day seven going into day eight, uh, I had the development of, of a pretty substantial viral pneumonia. Uh, I was routinely satting in the sort of 94 to 95% range in, on room air, but I could, I could get it up with albuterol and some deep breathing, a lot of cough, uh, a lot of uh, post-tussive emesis, a lot of dyspnea on exertion. Um, I, I listened to myself and had you know, scattered ronchi and decreased breath sounds on the, on the bottom right. Uh, I had a couple of opportunities to have lab, labs drawn, and, and thankfully I was never one of those who had high-risk lab findings, but you know, had a CRP of 80, a normal ferritin, normal lymphocyte count, normal liver enzymes, uh, but certainly had a biphasic illness that I think characterizes many of our patients. Uh, and so all in all, I had 16 days of fever. Uh, after, after that 16th day, I was, I was back. But, but like Anna said, I mean, I had some substantial uh, memory, not memory loss, but just memory lapses. Um, this, this ability to find words was, was, was really um, important to me. I, I really felt different from that standpoint. And then just the general deconditioning that comes from a prolonged illness. Yeah, I might as well jump in here as well, um, because I think some of the messaging here is that this, this illness is unpredictable in any particular person, and the treatment course is almost unique for everyone. Uh, my symptoms were much more like buddies in the sense I started off with a mild illness with just some cough and fatigue and uh, body aches, but it wasn't that bad. And by day six, I thought I'd kicked it. I thought it was gone. And then that night, uh, developed what I call a cytokine storm, where that's when the fever started, the body aches got a whole lot worse, um, shortness of breath, and uh, this strange sensation of pain, even, on, even if you touch the top of my head, uh, it just hurt everywhere. The nights were god-awful. And I was monitoring my pulse ox every 10 or 15 minutes like a hawk, with that fear of not knowing if it was gonna go south all of a sudden and I'd be headed towards the ER. That fortunately never happened, but that, that periodic every day, mornings were fine, I thought I was over it, evenings, here it comes roaring back. And along with, uh, just like with you guys, I had the, um, what I called fuzzy thinking where I couldn't focus um, I don't think I ever became delirious, but I just couldn't focus. I couldn't get work done. I just had to lay in bed and just uh, kind of hope for the morning to come where I was thinking it would go away for, for good. That went on for eight nights in a row. Never had to go to the hospital. But it's that being a physician, I think for all of us, knowing what could happen uh, is to me one of the, part, one of the horrors of going through this, it's true for every patient, but especially for those of us who have seen people in the ICUs on ventilators, uh, nobody really wants to go there and experience that. 
and that was a, a major part of uh, the horror story for me. An unbelievable experience, I'm sure. Thank you, doctors, for sharing. Dr. Creech, how was your family affected, and what steps did you take to ensure that they didn't contract the virus from you? My wife and I were actually at an event where we had a small cluster of infections. This was at the very beginning when there was uh, very little disease in the state, and there were, there were several families that were affected. So my wife and I became symptomatic on the same day, and, and we've got uh, kids that range from a college freshman to a second grader. So trying to quarantine away from them wasn't really a, a thing. And as a pediatrician, I knew that one of the silver linings, if we can say that, in the current pandemic is that children have been less severely affected than adults. We're, we're still monitoring this multi-system inflammatory syndrome very carefully, but in general, children uh, are not merely little adults. And so we actually made the decision, let's we'll quarantine together. Um, we will monitor for symptoms. We're not going to unnecessarily expose, but we didn't go to another section of the house since we were both infected um, and, and had both tested positive for the virus. Um, what's interesting is that all my kids developed disease. Um, my oldest, who's a college freshman, developed uh, fever and GI illness with, with a kind of a flu-like myalgia syndrome. My son, who's in high school, developed a more traditional cough and, and upper respiratory infection uh, kind of symptomatology along with fever and, and flu-like illness. And then my youngest had just a couple of days of fever and, and mostly GI complaints. What it really does though, is it then makes us very different as a family because we've, we've all now had it and it allowed us to feel a little bit more freedom as we cared for others in our circle who were uh, part of that first wave of infection. So we felt a little safer uh, taking a meal over or, or doing some of the other things once we recovered recognizing that, that we should have some degree of, of adaptive immunity, maybe not for long, but, but at least for, for a while. And then um, given the, the academic institutions that, that we're all at, um, we've had the ability to, to get many of our family tested by antibodies with some in-house assays and confirm that immune responses happen. So we, ha we were able to take a very different approach um, than, than, others, than others are able to. Yeah, and in, in my situation, uh, my son and I, had been driving from Manhattan to Birmingham for 20 hours and sharing the car, being very careful about wiping down surfaces, but not wearing a mask. He became ill on the night we got home. We looked at each other and said some expletive, and then we went into quarantine rooms uh, in the house to keep my wife from getting infected. And we stayed true to the quarantine for, in my case, um, 22 days, in my son's case, about 10. Despite that, my wife still became infected, which tells you that this virus is mostly transmitted by the aerosol route because we didn't wear masks. That wasn't pushed very hard back in March. And I think that's one thing that was overlooked in the original uh, warnings to, to folks. Fortunately, her case was mild. Her loss of sense of smell was kind of the giveaway. And she felt fatigue. Uh, for a few days, but fortunately had a mild illness. That's one thing that I think is worth saying is the post-COVID syndrome, I'll call it, after the acute symptoms are over, it, at least for me, took quite a while to get energy back. And there would be moments in the day, like two in the afternoon, I would just get wiped out and have to lay down. And that's not usually my MO. Yeah, as, as for my family, we unfortunately both 
my mom and dad uh, contracted COVID and, and tested positive. They have been serving as our childcare throughout this, you know, understanding the risks, but unfortunately we didn't think so soon that they would uh, be faced with the risks. And there was a tremendous amount of guilt that I had with that. Um, they both are in their late 60s. They have some comorbidities. Um, if I wasn't so out of it early on, I think I, I would have just been sick with guilt about them. Um, thankfully, they both sailed through their infections and in, in some ways have recovered and bounced back um, faster than I have. I think my youngest two children probably also were ill. Um, it, and I think that just goes to show it. it's really hard for families that live together and reside together um, to to totally prevent transmission, uh, no matter how careful you are. But I do think it speaks to this um, this comment of you can't always predict who is going to have what symptoms and how people are going to do. And I think the unpredictability of this illness is is what's hard as well. Thank you, doctors, for sharing your stories. Moving on now, do you think having COVID-19 has changed your approach to patient care? Dr. Sag, I'd like to start with you. Yeah, it has. And uh, I'd say in three ways or from three perspectives. We've already mentioned, or I've already mentioned, I think all of us felt this, um, the fear of the unknown, uh, that sensation of not knowing where this exactly was going to go. Uh, especially in those uh, what I called Rod Serling-like nights where I kind of enter the twilight zone, not sure if I'm going to come out on the good side of that. And that fear of the unknown uh, harkened me back to the early days of AIDS when I first was starting to practice uh, in the early to mid-1980s. And it was exactly what the patients with AIDS went through, where there was no sense of what was coming next. And that fear of the unknown uh, I could uh, sort of understand, but now I fully appreciate because uh, I went through it myself. The second thing related to that was the fact that there was no treatment. And having something that feels like it could be life-threatening, the first thing we always want to do is reach out to a provider and say, hey, what you got for me? And in this case, especially in March, there was absolutely nothing. In my case, um, the French study that came out on hydroxychloroquine and with azithromycin, and there were 20 some odd patients who received it. And there's these glorious graphs in the article that showed quick reduction in viremia. So I went ahead and started on hydroxychloroquine and for a few days added some azithro. I can't say that it helped me. Um, I certainly didn't feel any better. In fact, I felt like I felt a little worse from some side effects, uh, but at least I felt like I was doing something. Later, I was a little bit, uh, felt a little bit badly about that because I didn't have an EKG ahead of time to look at my QT interval, and, and I could have gotten myself in trouble. The way to do this, of course, would be through a clinical trial, but the underscore of the point, that sensation of having something that could be life-threatening and not having anything to treat it with was a pretty awful feeling. And now, I mean, I could sort of relate. I feel like I'm a pretty um, empathetic provider, but for those two points, I think I'm a much better provider now. And then the final point, I'm now um, attending in a COVID clinic. I'm getting ready to go there in just a few minutes. And when I sit down and sit across from a patient 
who has COVID and I can look them in the eye and say, yep, I had that too. And I can relate totally what you're going through. I think it helps me uh, as a provider. Yeah, Mike, this is Buddy. I, I completely agree with that that last point, especially. You know, I'm a I'm a pediatrician, so what do I know about adult infectious diseases? And yet I'm the PI for, for some of our NIH studies on remdesivir and, and now remdesivir and, and varicitinib. And as I talk to adult patients with disease, there's a camaraderie, there's a um, there's a simpatico there now where I can say I've, I haven't been exactly where you are because I, I thankfully wasn't hospitalized, but I get it. And I understand your breathing pattern. I understand how, how you're feeling a little bit. And, and I've, I've noticed that there's this, there's this immediate pause and almost a, a reduction in anxiety that says, okay, I'm talking to someone who's come through the other side of this and it's, 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 it's helpful, right? I mean, that, that's, that's what many of us are looking for, not just in medicine, but in life, as we see those who navigate hard situations and they come out the other side, typically better. And that gives us the strength we need to be able to go forward in it. And at least for my research endeavors, that's been a really powerful, um, powerful part of this, is being able to, to say, I've, I've been there to a little, little extent, and, and let me walk you through some options. Right. It's almost like group therapy. <laughs> that's exactly right. And goodness knows... Um, you know, I'm becoming a fan of uh, physically distanced, but socially engaged. Uh, and, and that's one method is, is, is being able to talk with clinical trial participants and others who are, are very, very fearful. You know, if it's okay, if I ask a question. Um, so we've mentioned, we've alluded to the fact that uh, with the family, in your case, buddy, everyone getting it, they, they get this kind of feeling of quasi invincibility, sort of a a cloak that maybe protects us. And, and in my case, I've had my antibodies checked in both in titer, but also neutralizing titer. And it's up to one in 30,000. It's, it's huge. And I donated plasma and cells through leukophoresis. But are we really protected? Do we know that? I think that's a great question. It's a fundamental question right now, especially as we launch these large vaccine trials. And I think the answer is simply, we don't know. If past is prologue, we should expect that we would have some degree of protection for a short period of time. But I, I think that's why these are seasonal viruses. And so while I might enjoy some protection, the three of us might enjoy some protection for the next, you know, what, three to six months, maybe, maybe longer. I, I think we just don't know. And even if we are protected, um, we don't know if we're protected from merely disease or if we're protected from acquisition. Um, we know that asymptomatic transmission plays a key part of this. So the last thing I want to do is is feel invincible and then uh, asymptomatically transmit because the virus has landed, not taken a great foothold, but enough that that it replicates and doesn't cause disease. So I think these are the unanswered questions that unfortunately we're not going to know for the next six months to a year, I would imagine. Yeah. Anna, how about you? Yeah, I called Buddy uh, I think it was last week, buddy, I call you a lot, I think, with my COVID questions, uh, with, with just the same question. And I, I think that has a real impact on, on what happens next in terms of the pandemic. The other thing I'll say in regards to how this has sort of changed my approach is it is just, you know, reminder number one million of the privilege, I think, that we have for me getting covid uh, even though it was a mild Ill illness, really rocked our world in terms of our family. We, both my husband and I, however, had the luxury of being able to stay home from work, 
being able to socially distance. And I think as we know, the COVID epidemic is disproportionately affecting communities of color. Not everyone has the privilege and the luxury of, of you know, staying home from work or working from home. Um, and I, I see that as we do these COVID huddles in our hospital and see that the vast majority of patients that we're caring for uh, are from communities of color. So I think that's really affected um, how I approach patient care going forward as well. Excellent points, doctors. Thank you for that. And Dr. Sag, thank you for that poignant question. The last question I'd like to pose to the entire panel. As communities begin to open up, what advice do you have for other healthcare providers, essential workers, and the general public at large? I'll go ahead and start. I, I think um, a lot of us are cautious about opening up too soon. Uh, you know, especially having gone through this illness ourselves, we know that those nights are long and that, you know, we don't want anyone else to become infected if they don't have to. But at the same time, I think we all understand sort of the economic devastation that the lockdown has had as we see patients in our clinic who are saying they haven't had enough food. Um, our food pantry in our, in our HIV clinic is almost empty. Our clothes closet is almost empty. So I guess I want to caution people against becoming too cavalier as we open up. I think people want to believe the virus isn't out there, but it is. It's invisible and more people are going to die uh, and it's difficult to fight. So we need to continue to embrace the social distancing and the masking and working from home when we can. But as I mentioned, I think the ability to social distance is a privilege. Uh, which many people literally can't afford. And then I also want to make the point that I think um, everyone on this call will agree with. This is a huge wake-up call as to how we fund our public health infrastructure. And public health needs to be a priority going through. Unfortunately, this is not going to be our last pandemic. And I hope in the future that we can be better prepared. I learned a lot, again, from the patient population I took care of in the 80s and 90s and until today, with HIV and from the early days of, of AIDS, I learned that going public and, and being out there with my story was important. So even when I was still ill, I was writing op-eds and some other things when I wasn't um, uh, fuzzy thinking and, um, and, and sort of has gone out, have gone out in front uh, on the topic and on um, educating the general public about what is what are the dangers here, and I think having been through it uh, gives a uh, a different perspective of this is something really bad that you don't want to get, and how to take uh, precautions. All that said, um, I think the opportunity to uh, re-implement stay-at-home orders um, is 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 gone. I think the horses left the stable. Um, we would have to have a major calamity in our healthcare system where hospitals are overrun with cases for us to get the social and political will to re-implement. So what are we left with? We're left with communicating consistent messaging about wearing a mask in public. And what I focus on a lot in the social distancing, and what I focus on a lot is I say that when you wear a mask, you're not so much protecting yourself, you're protecting others from becoming infected if you happen to be infected. And you can't know until you get sick, perhaps, that you've got this. And so since we know a lot of the transmission occurs in the 24-hour period before symptoms develop, 
wearing a mask in public is in essence saying to all your friends and neighbors, I care about you. And I'm going to wear this mask because I could be infected. And if we all did that, we will have a great opportunity to mitigate uh, this infection because staying at home for the reasons that, that Anna mentioned earlier, uh, the economic impact is huge. So let's, let's go to the next step. Case contact tracing would be great, but also, as Anna suggested, we don't have the public health infrastructure to really pull that off in a grand scale. So messaging about social distance, wearing a mask, and of course, hand washing are the things that we should focus on. I like that. And I think there's also a, a place here that, that we can uniquely, during this pandemic as infectious disease providers, um, have a call to unity, right? At, at this time, I think there are so many ways in which we're being shown our disunity and the tendency, I think, that we have to run to extremes. And, and a, a good friend of mine is always fond of saying the phrase that, you know, you can fall off the bike both ways uh, in terms of, of making an error, either being um, too far one direction or too far the other. And and this is a pandemic that 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 needs some nuance. So as as Mike said, um, the the horse may be out of the stable as it relates to everyone sheltering in place, and and yet there may be some need to do that, right? For certain uh, folks who are at high risk uh, groups or have high risk conditions, and it 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 may be that this is a time where we can bring uh, nuance and expertise and and logic to a situation that is seemingly demanding everything but those things. Um, and it's a time to bring, as, as Mike and Anna both said, a time to bring, bring unity, a time to bring a focus on, on what's important, a chance to maybe, maybe do the, the things that may only have marginal benefit, but it shows that we're in this together. And if I could just add one final point about unity, the thing that's made all of our jobs harder, unfortunately, is the politicalization of this epidemic. And it's really unfortunate uh, it, it's to the point where certain things, like if you say the word test or mask or ventilator, it's like a lightning rod. And before anybody even listens beyond those words, they're already reacting uh, potentially in a negative way about whatever message that we have. And I think that's something that makes our jobs a lot harder is fighting through this politicalization. I, I wish that would stop. Yeah, I mean, I agree with, with what's been said by, by Buddy and Mike. I think as an infectious disease um, fellowship program director, I really think this is an exciting time to be an infectious disease doctor. And it's a time where we can demonstrate just how amazing our specialty is. I wish there were more of us and I hope in the future there will be. And, and maybe this pandemic will be an opportunity to highlight to learners all the amazing, wonderful things about our field. Um, from the standpoint of epidemiology, to public health, to virology, to basic science, to vaccine development. Uh, so I'm hoping that in the end, um, we can sort of build the next generation of ID doctors on the backs of this pandemic. Uh, because like I said, unfortunately, I think you know that there will be other pandemics in the future. Um, and I'd love to have uh, more folks to stand shoulder to shoulder with as we, as we confront that. At this time, I'd like to thank Drs. Creech, Sag, in person for their participation and for sharing their stories and expertise. For the latest information and resources on COVID-19, 
visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. I'm Nadia Singh.